I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This is David. Welcome back to Base Slayer. I have a great conversation lined up for us today. I have Pablo Gonzalez, who is the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Bitso. Pablo, how are you? Thank you, David. I'm doing well. Thank you for, for having me here. Very excited about our conversation. So for those that don't know, Bitso is the largest uh, digital asset platform in Latin America. Uh, they recently raised a significant round, a Series C, that was led by the likes of Code 2. And for those that are listening, I'll say from the family office and institutional world, you are probably familiar with that firm. Before we get too far into that, Pablo, as everyone knows who listens to the show, we'd like to go into our founder's background. Uh, what led you to this world of digital assets? What inspired you to obviously uh, be the co-founder of Bitso? Uh, so if you could uh, rewind the tape for us a little bit, tell us a little bit about yourself prior to Bitso and what inspired you to really enter into this space to develop a platform that is being used by hundreds of millions of people. Sounds great, David. Thanks so much. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll rewind, but I'll try to be brief as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, on my, I, I call it my previous life. Uh, on my previous life, I used to direct commercials and do visual effects for films. I was living in Canada, in Vancouver, and uh, I was the creative director of this firm. And we, we worked a lot with video games. We did a lot of commercials. And uh, I was more of a, a creative guy. Uh, in a way, and uh, and it was very interesting because in 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 I'm, I'm always been interested by technology. In fact, what I've um, what I've kind of specialized was on the concept of telling stories uh, using new technologies, and uh, and one of the things that uh, led me uh, to to this moment was. A project I did. So in in 2008, I, I I worked on a film called District Nine. I don't know if you've seen it. I have. Uh, but uh, so I I, I uh, we were working with the director Neil Bloom, Bloomkamp and worked on the interfaces for the aliens and all these sci-fi interfaces uh, on film. And then I kind of became like a sci-fi interface guy for for film. Uh, and we would get a lot of, uh, like, you know, worked on a lot of films doing those things uh, was one of the, the things that I used to do. And in 2011, uh, I started working on a film called uh, Ender's Game, which is based on a cult uh, sci-fi book by Orson Scott Card, uh, the movies with Harrison Ford and Ben Kingsley and a number of other actors. Mm -hmm. And be, But before they shot the film, uh, the, the 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 writer and the director uh, approached me asking uh, how would uh, you know like how would interfaces work on this world and uh, and basically it's the story of uh, 
very short story, like it's a group of kids that get trained to be these genius military strategists and they go into this intergalactic war where they need to, uh, to, to, to command millions of drones and spaceships across the galaxy. So that was the premise, and they're like, okay, so how 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 does the technology look like, right? A uh, hundred and fifty years from now, I think it was, and uh, and I started doing research, and at the same time, my longtime friend, we used to do short films uh, together uh, as a as a side hobby. Uh, he's he was a CTO of a company that he later sold, and uh, at that time, and he would. You know, we would talk about futuristic things. And I remember doing the research of how would these computers talk to each other. And uh, and through that, I discovered the Satoshi white paper and, uh, you know, like talked about it with Ben. Ben has heard about this. Ben Peters is the co-founder of Bits as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and our currency line and our CTO. And we we were just discussing Bitcoin and he he was a little bit farther away, but just the consensus protocol was very fascinating. So I got to this through a very unexpected way. Yep. And uh, and I remember just going up, down the rabbit hole. Uh, it was very interesting having this uh, money that uh, can move around and belongs to no, uh, no, no institution or individual. And that... Uh, was a, a, a digital non-government money for the people at the time. That was mm-hmm. why I was interested. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a very interesting. So well, I worked on the film and like that kept going, but I, I kept reading about it. And and finally, like sometime later, I got my hands to use a bit of Bitcoin. And I remember that I got Bitcoin and I sent it to a friend that was living in Montreal. And there's there's a a phrase I really like, which is uh, every sufficiently advanced technology, it's indistinguishable from magic from John C. Clark. Mm-hmm. And I remember very clearly the first time using Bitcoin, it was magic. It, it reminded me like when I was a kid and I used the internet for the first time, I didn't fully understand it, but there was something unique. I've only felt that feeling two times in my life, right? So uh, I basically got obsessed. Uh, as I found more about it, I realized that it would change the world, and that I, I, I was one of the lucky people to 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 have been experienced it such at a, at such an early rate. But also, I was, in a way, put this responsibility that I also had to. I could push it uh, to to push for adoption and to push for use cases. Right, and uh, so. So that's it's it's a, it's a bit of a long story, but basically, it's a fantastic story. <laughs> it's a fantastic story. I have to ask you while we're talking. You said there are two instances in your life where you've experienced this kind of magic moment. So obviously, sending Bitcoin, understanding what was happening with that was one of them. What was the other one? So the, the other one. Uh, so my my father was a teacher at this university in Mexico, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the the guy that run like the computer science department mm-hmm. uh, was a good friend of his, so he would give classes on Saturdays, and I would love to go. Like I I love to go with my dad, and I would go and sit at the office of of this this uh, this professor, 
mm-hmm. uh, because he was like into technology, right? So from a very early age, I had a, a passion for this. Mm-hmm. And I remember one Saturday, he was basically connecting the university to the internet, mm-hmm. uh, probably the second or third university in Mexico to connect to, to, to the internet. Right. And you could only like, I mean, download papers from, uh, from like Berkeley or MIT. You could, mm-hmm. uh, there was a couple of games you could download. There was like a little chat system. Yep. There wasn't much you could do with it. But he was basically connecting the cables yeah. <laughs> in a way. And, uh, and I remember being there. And then he like, uh, he's like, hey, you want to like look around? And I started looking around. He didn't fully understand. I was, I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. But there was something special about that. Like yeah. I, I was interacting with something in, in the U.S. from Mexico. And what's really interesting, Pablo, is that what we have said for years is that what the internet did for the distribution of knowledge of connecting societies around the world is what Bitcoin and digital assets and blockchains are doing for value transfer around the world. And so that is really interesting that you know obviously those two instances of what you define as magical were when either information or value has been able to simultaneously through the art of code and mathematics be able to transfer everything around the world within light speed and so really really interesting on that i want to get into into bits though so as i alluded to um, not long ago, just a few weeks ago, in fact, um, you all announced a $250 million Series C that was led by Co2 um, and Tiger Global, Julian Robertson's firm. Um, and it is making you one of the largest fintechs in the region um, and a what is being called a digital asset unicorn. Now, I'm very specific. You know, people call it crypto unicorn. Um, I actually, and myself and my firm, call these digital assets, and we'll call you a digital asset unicorn. Um, and so we want to talk about what Bitso is. Uh, and if you could, um, I know the firm was founded in 2014, and you offer multiple different products. So for those that are learning about this world and have spent the last year understanding Bitcoin, understanding the reason for Bitcoin, especially in a world that is becoming more and more affected by inflation, they are now switching gears to learning about other digital assets like Ethereum and Solana and et cetera, et cetera. So if you could imagine you're sitting with someone right now, a sophisticated investor, but one that is just starting to learn about digital assets, how would you explain Bitso to them in a minute, just to give them a kind of an, an overview, if you will, of what it is? And then we'll go into more specifics about what you're doing there, the kind of work you're doing in specific parts of LATAM, and then we'll go further and further. But yeah, for, for now, just put yourself in the seat talking to an institutional or a sophisticated investor who's just learning about this world, and how would you describe Bitso? That's that's uh, great to hear. So I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. Uh, basically... An alternative financial system is being created uh, on top of this technology. Uh, there's a, 
innovation around this basically every single day. But it's a financial system that's transparent, that's global, that's more secure, that uh, th th there's so many things we can't imagine right now of the, the use cases that are being developed. Uh, going back to the internet, this basically allows uh, global financial systems that uh, you know make the economies a lot more efficient and that the people, uh, the people's economy a lot more efficient. So what Bitso basically does, we are connecting uh, this world uh, of cryptocurrency or digital assets uh, to the traditional financial systems in developed countries uh, working in Latin America right now. So we operate in Brazil, Argentina, and Mexico, and we give access to people in these countries to everything, to all the benefits that uh, the, the, these things try to offer. And uh, what we believe is that Latin America, it's really where, where these use cases for this technology will properly flourish. And that's what we're doing. We're doing it in a way that's regulated, where we focus a lot on user-centric design to make it easy for people, and where we give access, uh, you know, in a way where, where, where people are informed of how they use their money, we give them proper education, we're very transparent. And uh, yeah, we, we, we basically connect people's realities in Latin America with, uh, with the crypto economy. Right. So there are three different business lines, if you will. There's the Bitso app, which lets users buy, sell, or send or receive Bitcoin and other digital assets. There's Bitso Alpha, a professional-grade uh, digital asset trading platform. And Bitso Business, a suite of cross-border products for local enterprises. So if you could you know, briefly describe um, each one of those and tell people kind of what they each do. Um, obviously, I think the Bitso app letting users buy and sell, send and receive is fairly uh, easy to understand. The alpha for professional grade uh, trading, that's interesting. And bits of business, I think that's also very interesting in terms of cross-border products for local enterprises. I'm wondering if that is also in relation to remittances. And if I'm not mistaken, there's about $100 billion usually on an annual basis uh, that is remitted to Latin American countries. So I'm curious if that is also part of that. Yeah, that's correct. So I'll, I'll start with the, with the exchange and the why of the exchange. So there's a lot of crypto exchanges, uh, but our sweet spot, it's generally connecting uh, things like Ethereum or Bitcoin to the local economies, right? To create this access point. So basically what we do, it's a fully regulated offering where traders, market makers, hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera, could uh, trade in markets against national fiats in Latin America. As an example, we have uh, Mexican pesos, Brazilian reais, Argentine pesos, and also US dollars. So we, we, we have the biggest liquidity pools with, uh, with these uh, currencies. And what this enables, it's a free market where people can buy and sell. And with this enables, it's an easy convertibility between let's say Bitcoin and the Mexican peso. And, uh, and that can enable other use cases. So in a way, that's the infrastructure where we started, right? We, we actually wanted to start that day, 
doing remittances. And we said, well, Bitcoin, you can teletransport money across the world for like almost no fees. So let's let's work on remittances from the US to Mexico. And we realized that it wasn't really efficient unless you could go from Bitcoin to Mexican peso, essentially. And that's what we started building. Uh, the, the second one, it's the app, which is the, the use case layer. This is where uh, enthusiasts or people that are curious uh, get into crypto and start learning about it. And then basically it's almost like a, like a crypto-enabled digital bank, right? So you can make payments. We have a lot of volume of people paying rent or people doing their daily payments uh, with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies or even with uh, local currency like Argentine peso or Mexican peso, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's very interesting to see how with an app, they get access to a pretty much global bank account, right? And, uh, and we're, we're starting to see a lot of growth on even the non-speculative use cases uh, through our app. And then with the business uh, product, we're basically enable uh, going back to, to the remittances. We we believe that uh, we could we could offer remittances to people using Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, and uh, and that they would use it just because it was cheaper. But it's not really the case. There's a lot of friction, right? There's a user experience that needs to happen, and there's certain behaviors that are quite difficult to, to change. You know, people like to go to the same store where they go to uh, send, their, send their remittances and have the person on the store ask them about their kid, if they're sending money because they need to buy books because they're starting the, the, the like the new, um, they're starting school in a new year or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they, they like to feel safe, right? That the money arrives safe. Right. So one of the things we work with a lot of uh, cross-border companies, a lot of remittance companies, where we make it a lot more efficient from them to send their U.S. dollars to Mexican pesos. And uh, last year, we processed almost 5% of the remittances from the U.S. to Mexico, which is the largest remittance corridor in the world. And uh, like uh, over $1.2 billion in remittances. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people talk about the the promise of of digital currencies, or and uh, and what's interesting is that that promise it's available today. We're seeing people that go get their money, and they don't necessarily need to understand how Bitcoin works, what's the security, what's decentralization. They just go and get more money. They know it's more efficient. They 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 get more money. That it's safer, more transparent, more convenient. And, and that's pretty exciting to see. Right. So uh, one of the things where that case in particular, we've also seen for, for our business value proposition, a lot of uh, enterprise clients approach us to offer, like, let's say a bank that wants to uh, offer crypto to their customers. So we're doing that as well. And, uh, and some other exciting things that will, will come up pretty soon. So I'd love to get your opinion on this. Um, So I believe um, Bitso mentions they have about 95% of the digital asset market share in Mexico and about 60% share in Argentina. Um, And in January of this year, Colombian regulators um, chose Bitso as one of the nine companies allowed to test uh, digital asset use cases under the government's pilot program. 
I would love for you to kind of opine about this. It has over the last year um, with, again, what's happened with the global pandemic, with the effects of monetary and fiscal policy here in the United States, sophisticated historical investors like the likes of Paul Tudor Jones stress tested Bitcoin around May of last year relative to other stores of wealth and realized that it holds water, that it does provide a store of wealth, that it's uncorrelated, that there are benefits to having some of your wealth in Bitcoin uh, as inflationary issues continue to get more and more dominant. And so would you agree that some of the inflationary issues, some of the currency devaluement and debasements that have happened in the Latin American region over the last five, 10 some odd years has furthered adoption in that part of the world more than other parts of the world? Or if not, why do you think that may be? Yes, y yes and no. Uh, so there is, it's, it's, Latin America is very different. So there's a lot of similarities between countries, but there's a lot of differences uh, as well between countries. So when you look at something like uh, Mexico, yeah, the Mexican peso is not the best currency. Uh, I mean, we weren't lucky to, to be born with a British pound or a Japanese yen or even a US dollar, but it's also not the Venezuelan Bolivar, right? which you're the unluckiest person if you're born with a Venezuelan Bolivar. Uh, and, and then you have like other cases like Argentina. So we've, we, we're seeing right now most of our growth coming from Argentina, interestingly enough, as the Argentine peso has been devaluating uh, very rapidly. And the use case of uh, people from Argentina using us as a, it's not even to, to as a store of wealth, when, when you talk to people there, they use us as survival. That's the word they use, which is very interesting because you could see basically your money go to like be cut in half in the span of a month or less, right? If you don't learn how to, to store your wealth in other things, just so you don't see your money disappear. People in Argentina that maybe are my age, you know, I'm in my 30s, have seen for their 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 money gone to almost zero four times, right? There are in pesos. Even in Mexico, we've had that. We just haven't had a crazy devaluation like the way we had it. Uh, but but still, like your money continues to devaluate constantly. And yes, so so there is a faster adoption because we have less robust currencies, like if people in the US are worried about, for example, last year with COVID, all the incentives and the amount of inflation that happened with the US dollar. Uh, and we're gonna be seeing the effects of that pretty soon. Uh, now imagine with currencies like the Argentine peso or the Mexican peso or the Brazilian real, right? So, so yeah, I would say that uh, it's it it depends on the country, mm -hmm. but uh, but but it's definitely a factor. And I would add that 
it's not the only factor. You, you have places like Brazil where five banks control 95% of the market uh, for, for consumers like uh, financial services and where they agree on, uh, you know, like if you get a credit card that uh, you can get 140% annual rates, right? Uh, instead of what, you know, like people are used in the, in the Western world. Uh, or where you get a loan, like I just came back from El Salvador, and uh, 70% of the people in El Salvador are on bank, which is not that different from that, from Mexico, which is uh, about 50% now, I think. Well, you bring up El Salvador. Obviously, for anyone who follows the asset class and follows Bitcoin, El Salvador and Bitcoin were making some headlines about two weeks ago. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that movement. Um, for those that don't know, El Salvador passed a uh, law uh, recognizing Bitcoin um, as a, a legal uh, and acceptable form of, of uh, money. And, and so I'm curious, how does that affect Bitso uh, from a business standpoint if other countries in the region start doing the same? Right. So. Um... Well, I don't know if other countries will do the same. Uh, my guess is that if this works in El Salvador, definitely other countries in Central America will, will follow suit. Uh, it's very likely. But this is uncharted territory, right? This is completely new. It's the very first country in the world to make this legal tender. And what's very interesting is to understand how it started. And uh, this started, I was there this weekend, and it started in a community uh, by the ocean called El Sonte, which is it's a modest community where there's great, wa great waves. So there's a little surf surfing community. Uh, but other than that, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of people like uh, poor people. And, uh, and basically, they, uh, they, there's a group uh, called Hope House that started doing a lot of projects for the community. And they pitched the idea of uh, using Bitcoin to, to fund some of their projects. And some Bitcoiner gave them, uh, I don't know how much, but they, they gave them some money and uh, they've distributed about $40 to different people in the community, right? And they've, uh, I mean, I could, the, the story is a lot broader, but it's fascinating. Uh, the, the point where I want to get to, uh, they've started teaching people about Bitcoin, about uh, the Lightning Network, which is uh, one of the coolest developments. Uh, for those of you that know, it's basically you have the Bitcoin blockchain and it's very secure and uh, it's very decentralized. And then you have, uh, but, but still like that security comes with uh, certain downfalls, such as speed of payments or certain fees that you pay to the network. Uh, if, if there's a lot of Bitcoin transactions. And what the Lightning Network does, it's a layer two solution that allows basically Bitcoin to be transacted instantly with, with, with a pretty good finality. And that basically almost like pretty much free. So this is very new. It's very theoretical in most of the Bitcoin community. But when you go to El Sonte, uh, the the community has educated themselves to use Bitcoin Lightning. And they basically, it all works with Bitcoin. Like my, my uh, 
my mind was exploding there because I would see, like I would buy like at these stores where you would you wouldn't think that they have any type of technology. And I'm paying with Bitcoin for a soda or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you see the kids paying each other with this. The, the entire place basically runs on Bitcoin. And, uh, and it's the money of the people there. Like that's what they use. And it's efficient. And then it's teaching financial education to these people that didn't save any money. Uh, and, uh, you know, like you talk to store owners and they're, saving 10 bucks a month on Bitcoin, uh, you know, of, of Bitcoin mm-hmm. that otherwise they would have spent. And they're like, they, they're telling you like, oh, I'm like, are you worried that the price has gone down now? And they're like, no, the way we use Bitcoin, I have zero doubts. This is the future. So the $10 a month I'm investing, uh, I'm, I, I, I don't expect to see them in, in three years. Right. So I'm just keeping them uh, until, until that future comes to light. So that inspired this entire law to happen. And basically what it does, it's a small country, it's about 6 million people, but there's, it's a country where 20 per, over 20% of the GDP is remittances, where the average remittance, it's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's $100, and the fees are $20 for $100, even though it's a dollarized economy, uh, which is insane, right? Right. The 70%... Uh, on bank that I was telling you. So the, the banking system is not serving the people, but they're already using all these different like crypto wallets. They have dollars in, yeah, that they convert to Bitcoin. And it's it's a little surreal, but it's it's happening. It's, it's right. uh, and, uh, and, and they're trying to broaden that to the rest of the country yep. to enable more commerce, to enable investment. And it's basically... The only thing I would say, I would applaud uh, to awesome Salvadorans that really want a brighter future for the country. And this is a tool to, to, to properly empower them. Yep. And again, this is why your presence in that part of the world in uh, serving uh, the countries down there is so interesting because once that was announced, you saw other countries in the region start to have conversations about that publicly on Twitter and other uh, social media platforms. A conversation was started. And once conversations start, usually at the end of them, some sort of result happens, whether that's a positive result whether that's a neutral result or a negative result, some sort of result is going to happen in the next foreseeable piece of future here. And so those conversations are happening. I think it makes your presence again in that part of the world incredibly interesting. Now, before you go, I would appreciate some thoughts. Just just a quick thought on that, uh, Dave, sorry for, but a very quick thought on that. So we, we, We've been working to enable individuals and businesses in Latin America. And when this happened in El Salvador, it's very important for us to understand how we can help. And, uh, and it's just it's seriously one of the most exciting developments that are happening in the world today. So that's, uh, yeah, that's all I want to say. <laughs> I agree. 
And so before we go, I think a lot of people also would love to understand the differences in approach on regulation. So here in the United States, uh, we have the Coinbases of the world, the Anchorages of the world, the Fidelities of the world that work with U.S. regulators. Uh, and we are seeing uh, policymakers here take more of an active stance. We have uh, members of the SEC like Hester Paris who are uh, looking at policy to, I would say, I would equate it to being more uh, beneficial, uh, not necessarily punitive or trying to strike down the technology. I think our regulators here understand that there is a technology, there is an innovation, and they are trying to figure out ways to make it work. Um, and so what is the regulatory landscape um, in the countries that you serve? Uh, obviously, again, no one country obviously fits into a square peg, but would you also say that it's more of a open uh, conversation with regulators, or would you say that you feel that there are some countries in that part of the world that are more restrictive? Yes, uh, I, I would go back to my answer of both. Uh, that it's, it's a large region with very different countries, right? So we started in Mexico uh, in 2014, and ever since we've been working with regulators and there's a fintech law that passed that cover the, uh, they, they call them virtual assets, interestingly, uh, but going back to your digital asset versus cryptocurrency, but that's how the regulators call it in Mexico. Uh, and then you have uh, countries like Brazil that are opening up, but they're more on a wait and see. They've been, they've been looking at uh, how it develops. Uh, and they're, they're taking a more active role right now uh, to, I mean, to something like, for example, Venezuela, that's a mess. We don't operate there, but uh, there was this fiasco called the Petro and then it was from the government. And then, I mean, there's all these very strange things happening there. Uh, so it's very different, the approaches, uh, but yeah, we've seen, we've seen, open regulators that are working with, with the industry. And going back to what you were saying about the round, like the reason why we're, we're able to, uh, to secure this type of funding. And uh, it's also because we, we, we play with regulation uh, and, and we do it in a way that's, uh, that's safe and transparent, not only because it's a, it's a traditionally regulated sector, but also because we care about consumer protection, we care about transparency. Uh, these are things that are very centric to, to who we are. And, and these type of things allow us to, in a way, walk the talk, right? So not only we're, we're regulated in, in places like, uh, you know, where we operate, but we're regulated as well in uh, Europe uh, with a digital ledger technology license uh, that's specific to crypto exchanges and crypto use cases. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're, you know, like a lot of these countries look up, look at what the U.S. does for regulation. But we've seen in these cases, for example, with Mexico, being ahead of the U.S. with a lot of regulation uh, on how this is defined. 
And that's because since we opened up, and I, I mean, not only because, but since we opened up, we've been we've been collaborating with the authorities on how we, um, you know, how 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 to regulate these things. Mm-hmm. Fascinating conversation, Pablo. Going from your introduction to this as a futurist in movies to obviously building a formidable business down in Latin America, servicing hundreds of thousands and, and potentially millions of uh, users and people down there. So thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, where can people just very briefly, if people are listening, especially as we have listeners down in the Latin American region, where can people find out more about Bitso and potentially look to uh, maybe incorporate into their day and day lives? Thank you, David. I appreciate it. So uh, you can always download the app uh, in the Android uh, store or in, uh, in, in, in the Apple store. Uh, bitso.com you can also go create an account try it out uh, it has no cost to open an account and test it uh, and even if you don't have any bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency like try it out and uh, and it's just the best way to learn is by using it right so you can you can buy like five dollars worth of bitcoin and uh, and send it to a friend and you'll see why this is important uh it's it's magic, right? It's any sufficiently advanced technologies in this too much world for magic, and what we're trying to do is to really bring that magic to light. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Pizzo. And uh, yeah, if you're in Latin America, go go ahead and open an account and try it out. Um, great conversation, David. Thank you, Pablo. This was Pablo Gonzalez, co-founder and chief strategy officer at Bitso. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and we'll have you on again soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.